Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Time for the Hillsdale Dialogue of the Week. Each week for an hour, I sit down with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his extraordinary colleagues at Hillsdale. And we revisit, as we have for the last year, the history of how the West became the West, how we ended up here in 2013. And I'm so pleased this week to resume a conversation I began last year with Dr. Kenneth Calvert of the Hillsdale faculty. He is also the headmaster of the Hillsdale Academy. And Dr. Calvert, Happy New Year to you. Welcome back. Thank you, Hugh. Happy New Year. Let's remind people of what the Hillsdale Academy is so that they understand that Hillsdale College has many outreaches, not just over the radio or in the classroom at the college. Right. This is a K-12 school that was founded in 1990 by the college uh, to serve as a traditional and classical model of education. In other words, uh, a throwback to the way education used to be done. Uh, in order to uh, show a way forward uh, for the for the country and its uh, education, educating K through 12 students, we've uh, worked with many private schools and charter schools. Uh, very recently, this has uh, grown into the Barney Charter School Initiative, uh, now establishing charter schools across the country. Um, so it's private, it's charter. Anybody uh, who wants to work with us to uh, reestablish. Um, right-headed <laughs> traditional uh, education in America. There is a great uh, part of the website at hillsdale.edu that explains the academy. And if you are out there listening and you're intrigued, uh, just send Dr. Calvert an email, kcalvert at hillsdale.edu, K-C-A-L-V-E-R-T at hillsdale.edu. And, of course, this and all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hughforhillsdale.com. You can recall, regular listeners, and to my new audiences across the land, including in Casper, Wyoming this week, uh, Dr. Calvert and I and Dr. Arn had begun a study of the early Christian church last year uh, that we interrupted to, uh, to focus on Winston Churchill for a while. But when we left off, we were nearing 285. But I want to go back, if I can, with you, Dr. Calvert, and have you... Uh, if you just take the floor for a moment, remind people of how the church became the church. And I think this is so crucial because just this week I, I heard a sermon on when the Acts of the Apostles became separated from the Gospels. And I think that goes to about 170 A.D. And the early church took a long time forming before we got up to Constantine. That's correct. Uh, Constantine, of course, came to power in 324 A.D. And in that 300 years between the time of Christ and, and the rise of Constantine, you had a, a whole development there of the church, beginning with the disciples, and of course uh, he made it clear that his kingdom was not of this world, uh, that he was sending them out to evangelize the whole world, not just the Mediterranean, but to bring um, the whole world into uh, a knowledge of the gospel and into his church. And um, over those 300 years, you had heresies emerge, you had all kinds of persecution uh, the Roman pagan empire um, persecuting the Christians because they could not worship the gods of the empire. And uh, through that time, um, the Christians, uh, as Tertullian, one of the great Christian fathers, said that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church, um, that Christianity actually grew and prospered in that context, and by the time of Constantine had become a significant power. And it was throughout the, the Western world, and, and we define the Western world as including uh, the lands of Arabia and the, and, the, and the Middle East, as well as we, we tend to think of Rome as Rome, but it was a far-flung empire. Absolutely. Uh, from Britain up in the northwest uh, to Arabia in the southeast, 
the Roman Empire included dozens upon dozens of, of, of various cultures throughout that area. One of the things we covered last year is that the persecutions were not systematic, but when they occurred, they were ferocious. Absolutely. Um, for the first 200 years, persecution was really local. Uh, very much a local affair. It depended upon the magistrate. Sometimes the magistrate would be very anti-Christian. Other times magistrates would just let uh, the Christians be themselves. In fact, in North Africa, the region of Carthage, around Carthage, uh, Christians had not been persecuted for many, many years. Uh, The first empire-wide persecution came under the Emperor Decius in 249 A.D., and, uh, and then after that, there were a couple of other further uh, persecutions. But these were the first empire-wide persecutions. As these emperors got the feeling or began to believe that the Christians were truly hurting the empire. And I think we also have to spend just a minute or two on when people think of Rome, they think of Caesar. And, and maybe the late Roman Republic and the Senate and, and maybe Sulla and some of these others. But by the time we are talking about, we've been through uh, all of the Augustus Caesar. And and now tell us about how the empire ran and how, who became emperor and what was the, the 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 defining feature of being the emperor in these years. Right. An important part of this whole history is the fact that at the same time the Christians were going from being a persecuted minority into a a fairly substantial group within the empire. The empire itself was waning. It was becoming more. It was becoming weak. Uh, the golden age of the Roman Empire was. Uh, from the time of the Emperor Augustus, uh, we'll say uh, 27 B.C., until 180 A.D. in the time of Marcus Aurelius. That's when things were really strong. After Marcus Aurelius, about 180, things began to be weak. And from about 180 to 284 in that area, there were no less than 27 different emperors. In 100 years, 27 emperors. That's right. So you're talking about, you know, on average, three to four years you had a transition and there was a great deal of civil war, a great deal of, of um, upheaval within the empire during that hundred years. Goodness, you know, the average uh, uh, playing career of an NFL professional is three and a half years, uh, Dr. Calvert. So an emperor actually just about an NFL career span, huh? That's about right. And for many of those emperors, actually a far shorter amount of time, <laughs> some just a couple of months. And so it was, it was, uh, it was not a happy time. And Constantine comes really at the end of that period, and what's important to understand about Constantine is that this was an age in which the emperors were trying to recover the old strength of the Roman Empire to bring things back together again. Well, tell us about the man. People know of Constantinople now, of course, Istanbul, and right. it's, a, it's just a name shrouded in in 1700 years ago history but he must have been you know flesh and bone a very very vibrant figure tell us about him well constantine um was uh born to uh, his mother helena who was a uh, a christian woman uh she was uh, not particularly learned and not of a great family uh but she was a christian woman and um was very staunch in her faith uh her his father constantius chlorus uh, had been emperor and uh, was a very powerful man, particularly located and um, had his his regional power in the West, in Gaul and Britain, in the West. And so, when uh, Constantine came to power, he grew up. He or, uh, grew up. He he came up through uh, a family 
that was both pagan and Christian. Constantius Chlorus worshipped Apollo, uh, worshipped uh, the unconquerable sun, Sol Invictus. He was a sun worshipper, um, very strong military cult as well. And so Constantius um, and Helena uh, raised their son in kind of a divided household, uh, both Christian and pagan. But Constantine um, seemed to be uh, decidedly a, a strong personality, uh, a strong individual. And when his father died, uh, he took on his father's mantle and became uh, a, uh, a candidate, if you want to call it that, for emperor himself. Uh, his father died in 306, and Constantine struggled from 306 to 324, to take on the other candidates or the other opponents for uh, imperial power, and by 324 had defeated uh, no less than three other opponents. You know, Dr. Calvert, people think of political leaders now, and they never imagine them in armor with a sword in their hand. Uh, but there were, as, as some fighting generals became presidents in our era, like Grant and Benjamin Harrison, there were fighting emperors, and I think Constantine was very much a fighting emperor, wasn't he? He was definitely a fighting emperor. I, I think, though, it's important for us to distinguish between his context and a person like Eisenhower, who uh, was under was a military man under civilian control. Um, Constantine was both a military man and he was the government. Uh, so a, a very important distinction there in, in their positions as general. Um, but Constantine, yes, he was, he was both uh, emperor and as emperor, uh, uh, general, uh, commander of all the armed forces. And then when we come back from break, we're going to talk about how Constantine, son of a sun worshiper, uh, becomes not only emperor, but also the pivotal figure in taking Christianity from that best a tolerated but growing cult into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I'm talking with Dr. Kenneth Calvert in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue about early Christianity, where we're picking up the March of the West. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, go to hugh4hillsdale.com or directly at hillsdale.edu. There's so much free material there and all of the information on the Hillsdale Academy and how the initiatives of the Academy might influence your education in your secondary schools as well. Stay tuned. I'll be right back with Dr. Calvert on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. Hope you're having a wonderful end of your week. I always end my week on the radio with either Dr. Larry Arn or one of his many talented colleagues of Hillsdale College in Michigan, Hillsdale.edu. If you're not already a subscriber, you ought to go. It's completely free and sign up for Imprimus, which is our speech digest, which comes out monthly. There are also all sorts of free online courses at Hillsdale.edu, including courses on early American history, the Constitution, the Progressive Era, and the Hillsdale Dialogues, which have been underway for one full year and we begin our second year, are intended to take you through the history of the West in bite-sized, you know, almost appetizers for your learning. And my guest today, he's been my guest many times in the past year, Dr. Kenneth Calvert, who is a member of the faculty at Hillsdale College. I love his ratings, by the way, at RateMyProfessor.com. He's an extraordinarily appreciated professor on the campus of Hillsdale. 
He's also a headmaster of Hillsdale Academy, so he's a beloved professor, and I, I assume a beloved headmaster. Uh, uh, we don't know. Days, not all days. <laughs> I'll bet not all days. What principle is, right? Yeah. And, and uh, he is our guide through the, the, the rise of early Christianity and its adoption by the state. Now, I must admit, you used the word Gaul in the first segment, and for the benefit of the Steelers fans, that's France uh, and a little bit of Italy. Uh, so he, Constantine rises up, battles others to take over the Roman Empire. And I have, for as long as I can remember, known what the Battle of the Milvan Bridge was in 312. But I honestly, I have no idea where it occurred. The Milvan Bridge is right near the city of Rome. It's just north of the city of Rome. And at this point, what's happening is Constantine is fighting uh, one of his opponents, Maxentius, for control of, uh, of the west, of the western part of the empire, and for control of the city of Rome. And he has, before the, before the uh, uh, battle takes place, he has a vision. And this vision is of a Christian symbol, a Cairo, which is interestingly enough placed, um, he sees it in his vision before or next to the sun in the sky. Um, so in a way you have this mixture of a Christian symbol, but also a little hint of that sun worship that his father was involved in. And there is a voice from heaven that says to Constantine, by this sign, go forth and conquer. And so he puts the Cairo symbol on the shield, this Christian symbol, on, the sh- on his soldiers' shields. And uh, they go forth and they beat their enemy. They defeat Maxentius. And um, from that point on, Constantine honors Christ as, uh, as his God. As now, his Dr. Savior. Calvert, do we know from contemporary accounts how this was received by his army. I mean, this is, if all of a sudden we had President Obama come out and say, by this sign, conquer, I've had a vision, we'd seek to have him committed. But of course, this is the not ancient world, but near ancient world in in 312. What do we know about the reaction? Well, this kind of thing is not uncommon at all. It is is quite common uh, to have a dream, uh, to have a vision, to have some sort of uh, sign from the divine um, in 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 the midst of a battle, in the midst of some sort of important event. So in their minds and in that world, it was not at all unusual uh, for that to happen. And so what, what most scholars understand about this is that his army had to be made up of a great number of Christians for this to have gone over well and to be well accepted. Um, and if and those who were not Christian, um, they certainly would have bought into the idea that their emperor, their leader, had had a vision from the divine, from his God, and that uh, this was something that was readily accepted. Now, when you say his army had to be made up of Christians, immediately yep. people listening are wondering, what do you mean by that? Do you, do you mean that they, they, there's no Council of Nicaea, there's no creed at this point? What do you mean by it had to be made up of Christians? What would be their core belief? Well, the core belief at that point was that uh, Jesus Christ was their Savior, Jesus Christ was their King. Uh, the Church had begun to be planted and established uh, throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, there were already bishops active in many of the regions, and of course there was a bishop at Rome um, who already uh, had uh, some authority as the bishop of the capital of the empire. And so there were Christians present. Um, and. You know, when the persecutions took place in the Roman world, quite often it was in the West uh, that the persecutions were least effective or or least pursued. And so um, Helena really is an example of, of Christianity in the Western part of the empire. 
And um, it's, it's understood that his armies had to have included uh, a good number of Christians. Now, the Battle of the Milvan Bridge, uh, yeah. uh, what kind of scale? And, and we know what Wellington said of Waterloo. It was a damn close-run thing. Right. Uh, what, what was the scale of the battle, and, and was it a rout, or was it uh, truly something that turned on a division or a battalion or a handful of troops? Well, uh, not, not a great deal is known about it. There were tens of thousands on each side. Uh, we do know that Constantine had pre-planned uh, a number of um, uh, aspects of the battle, including a number of pontoon bridges which the enemy had to use that were actually uh, designed uh, to, to fall apart and oh. to, to, to break up on the enemy. There is, there is definitely... Um, uh, a sense that this was a, a pretty one-sided battle, uh, that Constantine won it fairly handily, and yes, it was a rout, and ended up in the death, uh, eventually, of his, his uh, opponent, Maxentius, and his control of the city of Rome. Now, those of us who love Roman history know these are bloody affairs, and uh, the wounds are horrible, and the suffering is great. So in yeah. the aftermath, you can have a traumatized legion or a traumatized people. I don't know what Rome reacts, but the Edict of Milan file follows a year later. What was that, and what does it matter to our story? Well, what's happening here is that through Constantine, um, it's very clear that Christianity is now moving surely but gradually into the mainstream. It's becoming more accepted. And the Edict of Milan in 313 is a, an agreement between Constantine and one of his other opponents, a man named Licinius, uh, who was controlling the eastern part of the empire at that point, an agreement that Christianity would now be legal, that it would be tolerated and it would be legal in the empire. Another religion among all the many religions in the empire, it would now be considered um, as, as a legal religion and would no longer be persecuted. I'm curious, did the, did the Christians buy this or were they, you know, if you came out in Syria today or, or in Iraq or in one of the Islamic countries and, and you had an edict of, of uh, Damascus saying, hey, Christians, Ali Ali Enfri, come on out. Right. No one would rush out and start worshiping in public, I think. Well, it did take some time. It did take, take some time for not only the Christians to get used to this, but also for um, the pagan oppressors uh, to get used to this idea. Very interesting that there was a group in North Africa called the Donatists who did not trust Constantine. In fact, they viewed Constantine as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the Donatists were Christians who were very rigorous, what we might call fundamentalist in their Christianity, and really doubted uh, the idea that this emperor uh, would now embrace and legalize Christianity. Oh, how interesting. So the suspicion that we would anticipate today was there, as well as the schisms that uh, you know, just completely destroy church unity. We come back from break with Dr. Kenneth Calvert of Hillsdale College and the headmaster at Hillsdale Academy. We will march forward from 313 to see what happens to the faith. If you are enjoying this or any of these other conversations, all of them are available at HughForHillsdale.com. That's where all of the Hillsdale Dialogues 50-plus, I think, are cataloged and available for free for your listening. And go to hillsdale.edu to learn more of the other online courses and to sign up for Imprimus. I'll be right back with Dr. Calvert on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. 
34 minutes after the hour, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Each week, I hear Hewitt talk with either Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, in this case, Dr. Kenneth Calvert, professor at Hillsdale and also the headmaster of Hillsdale Academy. As we try and, via the radio, bring to the uh, wide audience an appreciation for how we got here in 2013. And we're in a crucial period right now, the period of 313 after the Edict of Milan that legalizes Christianity up through the time of the Council of Nicaea. Take us forward, Dr. Calvert. Right. In 313, of course, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the Christian faith becomes legal. But there is still another 11 years of, of conflict between uh, Constantine and his, his opponents, and particularly Licinius in the East. By 324, he does become the sole emperor. He, he defeats Licinius, and at that point begins to consolidate his power throughout the Mediterranean, consolidate his power throughout the Roman Empire. And this is a particularly important moment, not only for Christianity, but also for the Roman Empire, because there had been this struggle for well over a hundred years now of bringing the whole thing together and bringing peace to the empire. And so Constantine um, is is sometimes called the new Augustus. Uh, Augustus was the founder of the Roman uh, Principate of the Roman Empire. Um, And here Constantine, the new Augustus, has now revived that unity, brought it together again. At the same time, he eliminates this problem of the persecution of Christianity and this problem of a division over this religion by making it legal and bringing it under his sphere of influence. And this is something we have to really understand about Constantine, that he held a position called Pontifex Maximus, which is a position that every emperor had held before him from the time of Augustus up through to Constantine. And the Pontifex Maximus was the high priest of all the religions of the Roman Empire and oversaw all of those religions, and now including Christianity. Well, this is, of course, for people who are wondering, when does the Pope emerge? This is the Bishop of Rome become the, the, the leader of all the churches. This is very confusing because it's kind of hard to merge a Pontifex Maximus into the Christian faith, isn't it? Well, not really. The, 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 the original term, Pontifex Maximus, means the great bridge builder, and it was, it was that high priest within the, Ro- the pagan Roman world, which, which oversaw all of the rites and all of the liturgies and all of the sacrifices of the pagan world. What, the, what happened in Rome was they simply Christianized that idea. It is not the idea that the Pope oversees pagan religions, but that the Pope oversees now all of the priests and all of the activities to unify it, to make it more consistent throughout the Catholic world. That's what the Christian idea of Pontifex Maximus means. Now, meanwhile, the church isn't exactly all on the same page. The Arian heresy is swirling. Would you tell people what that is? Right. Uh, Arius was a a deacon in the city of Alexandria. He lived from 250 to around 336 A.D. And Arius, uh, well, first of all, you have to understand that Alexandria was very much an intellectual place. It was very much a uh, a university town. There was a lot of philosophical discussion going on. And Arius was very much a product of this time, this era in Alexandria. And what Arius taught was that Jesus had not existed from the beginning of time, that um, he only came into existence when he came into the world as the incarnate Christ. 
And so Arius said that there was a time when he was not. That is, there was a time when Jesus did not exist. Now, this conflicted with, for instance, the Gospel of John, in which uh, the, the writer of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, of course, Jesus. So there was um, this conflict between Arius and between the Orthodox or biblical view of Jesus. Um, And you may remember from our uh, conversation a few months ago that we talked about the roots of, of heresy among the Christians. It almost always had to do with the person of Jesus. Was he fully divine? Was he fully human? You know, what was that mixture and how do we talk about that? And this is where the Aryan controversy is rooted as well. And when we come back from break for our last segment in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, we're going to talk about how Constantine, obviously a magnificent, talented leader, decides to settle all of the divisions within the Christian church at the same time that he settles a new capital for Rome or a second capital for the Roman Empire. All of this in the person of one man, Constantine, the subject of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. For all of the Hillsdale Dialogue, go to Hugh for Hillsdale. Start at the beginning with Homer, and you can catch up quickly on your iPod by downloading them all. I'll be back with Dr. Kenneth Calvert after this. Stay tuned to The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, if you've just tuned in for the first time, you're in the middle of a Hillsdale Dialogue. Uh, I am joined by Dr. Kenneth Calvert of Hillsdale College each time at this week. Of this week, we always bring together either Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College to continue our march through the history of the West to bring even Sealers fans into the West tradition, and uh, we're making great progress, but I should call this the segment of the two cities that matter beyond Rome, Constantinople and Nicaea, because these are the two cities that that really are intertwined with where the world goes next, Dr. Calvert. Tell us about the roles they play. Right. Uh, Constantine is now, of course, the sole emperor, and he sees that there is division within the Christian church, between the Arians and between the Orthodox. And so what he does is call together a council to settle this issue. It's important to understand that the evidence that we have suggests that Constantine did not quite understand what the doctrinal problem was, but he knew that the Christians were divided. And in his role as emperor, in his role as Pontifex Maximus, now overseeing the church, it was for him, it was his duty to bring them together to settle this so that they were no longer conflicting with one another. And so they, he brought them together at the Council of Nicaea, in which uh, the Nicene Creed has its roots. Um, when foundation. does that occur? Excuse me? When does that occur? That occurred in 325 A.D., about a year after he had defeated Licinius. So it was very quickly uh, that he brought the bishops together to this council. At the same time, he's uh, establishing his new capital at Constantinople. Why did he do a new capital? Well, it's very important to understand that throughout the history of the Roman Empire, the eastern half of the empire was always the strongest half. It had all of the industry, the largest population, the greatest wealth. The West was not as strong as the East, and the focus of government had been shifting uh, more and more to the East. And so it was actually quite a a necessary and brilliant move to establish a new capital. And as we will find out in future weeks, this eventually leads to the split between Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy. But... For the moment, let's focus on those dozen years left in Constantine's life after he consolidates his power 
and after he calls the Council of Nicaea together and establishes the new capital, how does he and how does his mother bring vigor and order to the Christian world? It's it's quite remarkable. Um, uh, he and Helena were um, keen to establish the most holy sites of the Christian faith in Jerusalem and throughout the Holy Land, um, such as uh, the, the Church of the Nativity, etc. Um, they also established a, um, uh, um, um, a common Bible to be used throughout the Church, um, a number of things that, that they did uh, to strengthen the Church. Um, they gave a great deal of wealth, a great deal of money to the establishment of churches, including, of course, uh, the great Basilica of St. Peter's at, uh, at Rome. Um, which was later torn down, and the new uh, Renaissance St. Peter's was built. So a great deal of activity in she brought the, the half of Christianity. She brought much of Jerusalem to Rome, didn't she? I think she brought the steps that I have climbed to she Rome. She did. She did. Uh, the steps that uh, we are told had been part of Herod's palace. Yeah. yeah. And so they, they go about this church building and empire building. Mm-hmm. What does, does he in turn persecute the people that won't go along with him? Now, what's important to understand is that... Um, uh, he does not make Christianity the sole religion. He promotes Christianity, and Christianity is legal. But what many do not understand is that Constantine actually continued to give money to support uh, the worship of Apollo. Uh, he also gave uh, some money to worship, uh, the, the continue the worship of, of the sun. Um, many of his inscriptions will talk about God, but will not be so precise as to mention Christ or Jesus. Um, he uses a variety of symbols that can be variously interpreted, both Christian and pagan. Um, so it is important to understand that Constantine, um, though, well, let me put it this way. Um, for those who want to see him as a Christian, they will call him the 13th Apostle. Huh. On the other hand, there are those who are very cynical about Constantine and say that he really wasn't Christian at all. He was just using the church for his own political ends. And given where he's buried, that's an interesting title, the 13th Apostle. That's right. He's buried in the Church of the Twelve Apostles. He was baptized in the in his final year before he passed, before he died in 337, which is another piece of evidence that those who are more cynical will say, well, he's just waiting until the last minute uh, to be <laughs> baptized. Um, really, from my perspective, and there are a number of authors who've touched on this, from my perspective, it's somewhere uh, in the middle. Is there a best biography of Constantine that you recommend to people? Um, Yes, there is. I would say that uh, David Potter's book, uh, Constantine, um, the Emperor, Constantine the Emperor is the title by David Potter, published in 2012, is uh, is a fine biography. What a remarkable man. I mean, people don't know much about him, but without him, we wouldn't have the West, would we? Right. Uh, He was absolutely essential uh, to the West. Not only in um, uh, giving uh, Christianity a place at the table, uh, but also in the way he established kingship. Um, many of the Western, and Eastern for that matter, Byzantine, but also in the West, many of the Western kings, many of the Western monarchs, uh, took Constantine as a model for their rule. Now let's do a, what we call a radio tease and set up next week. There's another figure emerging at the same time he is is preeminent, Athanasius. And uh, tell us a little bit about why people should look forward to next week. Well, I think Athanasius is a great example, number one, of the battle between the Orthodox and the Arians. 
uh, that is, those who saw Jesus as from the beginning, as that's what Eighth Athanasius would say, and those who saw Jesus as only becoming divine later in his life. So Athanasius is an important doctrinal person. But also Athanasius come, came into conflict with Constantine. Constantine, after Nicaea, wasn't entirely sure he had done the right thing, and he came into conflict with Athanasius and actually exiled him uh, to the city of Trier in Gaul. And when we come back next, we're going to pick up the story of that most amazing bishop, uh, the father of orthodoxy is called, and we will march forward. Dr. Kenneth Calvert, you've covered a lot of ground, but I, I'm glad to spend an hour on Constantine and salute him, and I look forward to continue our conversation next week. America, if you've enjoyed this, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are this way, because every member of the faculty and staff at Hillsdale committed to understanding the West. They're all at hughforhillsdale.com. They're all for free. Don't miss next week and don't miss the next segment when I wrap up this week's Hugh Hewitt Show.